Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. I almost hate to use the word educational. Charles Staley. Phil Stevens. I guess I'm kind of the, uh, the dark horse here. And Rob Fortress Fortney. But there really is no secret. Thanks for listening. All righty. Welcome, ironradio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I am a bodybuilder. Hey, folks. Rob Fortress Fortney here, um, editor, journalist, former competitive bodybuilder, and uh, strength trainer. Uh, Phil Stevens, Highland Games, powerlifting and strongman athlete uh, and strength coach. All right. Today we have on the line uh, Graham Thomas. I saw Graham give a, a fascinating lecture uh, up in uh, – London, uh, Ontario, uh, it was months ago, but it was one of those talks that really sort of stuck in my mind. And so I wanted to, uh, pick his brain a little today and have him on. Uh, I would describe Graham, Graham, you can certainly embellish on this, but sort of a nutrition and exercise phys professional, you know, lecturer, uh, lives in Toronto. I know he's involved in coaching and university activities at University of Western Ontario. Uh, he's co-owner of the Nutrition Academy as well. So, Welcome, Graham. Thank you, Lonnie. It's a pleasure to be here. I just want to start off with that last um, part of your descriptor, really, which is, can you tell us a little bit about the the Nutrition Academy and, you know, uh, maybe even if that was your origins, you know, into uh, fitness and nutrition or if that came later or something along those lines? Well, I guess my origins, like so many of us in this field, start out in the, you know, former university competitive athlete and then kind of going on the academic side going through kinesiology going all the way up and then kind of ultimately doing grad studies in exercise nutrition and kind of I guess during the schooling also worked as a personal trainer like so many but you always come to a point where you start to realize that the stuff you read in books and the stuff you're hearing in class doesn't seem to translate so well back into the real world and I guess that's really where some of my newer projects with the Nutrition Academy, with my own kind of one-on-one consulting, have taken me. It's just kind of bridge that gap between what academia seems to know, what kind of observational science tells us works in the real world, and why there is sometimes that disconnect and kind of trying to figure out just basically how to bridge that gap. Yeah. In fact, that's one of the things I think I like about you the most is that sort of respectful but critical commentary about that because I think we, we, we live in a society that's sort of built on science and technology and most people know almost anything at all <laughs> about science and technology. So I've had, I had a student last week, for example, say, you know, low carb, low fat, I just don't know what's true. And I'm like, listen, you know, the scientific method is going to be your, one of your main tools to cut through that, you know, to cut through nonsense. It'll do it like a hot knife through butter. But, you know, we have to put this in context because I agree with a lot of, uh, I think, what, what you probably feel, Graham, which is, you know, science can, although science is real world in a lot of ways, I mean, that's its goal is the pursuit of truth, I think. But oftentimes it's such a stepwise process that people are left frustrated because reality is so complex when people try to lose weight or you know, consume a different macronutrient profile, eat more protein, say, or whatever. 
or I know you've talked about the cholesterol issue before, dietary cholesterol as, as a bad guy or not a bad guy. And I mean, these are all very clever outlooks. And I don't want to get into our topic of the day too soon, but uh, so it sounds like is that sort of the goal of the Nutrition Academy to educate people on the, the science of, of like exercise science and nutrition a little bit? It is. It's kind of trying to take what we know on the academic side, but then also translate it into real-world terms. A lot of academics kind of forget that when they're talking to their academic buddies, they can use terms like glycogen resynthesis and all that, and it makes sense. When you take to the layperson, they have no idea what you're talking about, what the significance may or may not be. And then even more so than that, sometimes where carbohydrates actually come from in the diet, you'd be surprised at how many people are you know, sometimes shocked to learn that vegetables contain carbohydrates. It seems that people know that starches and potatoes and things like that are carbohydrates, but they'll make the connection with vegetables and fruits are also just different forms of carbohydrate with different concentrations. So a lot of what we do is taking the themes from science and then distilling it into ways that actually make sense and are meaningful to um, the everyday person and trying to help them kind of once they understand that, then figure out kind of where they fit in in this vast cornucopia of knowledge that we seem to have and it seems conflicting often and just kind of helping steer them to the right, I guess, solutions or avenues. So are you doing that sort of one patient or client at a time or are, are you a small group or a large group kind of approach or how do you go about that? Well, the Nutrition Academy is basically designed for its group instruction. So I guess in some ways you can consider it almost like a Weight Watcher's on steroids with a lot better information where we have the group okay. setting and we want to teach a lot of people at the same time because what we found that although everyone can benefit from personalization and individualized programming, often the basics are the same for everyone and so few people have an understanding of what makes sound you know, nutrition and exercise advice that often just breaking everyone down and starting everyone at the same point, there's tremendous value to doing that. And then kind of once they go through, you start to see kind of where the gaps are in everyone's knowledge. You can sometimes tailor classes specifically for the group in question. And what you often find is that even with basic, I guess, knowledge or understanding, most people get the bulk of the results they're ever going to get as long as they apply that knowledge. Right. So is this the kind of stuff that's delivered? Where do you deliver? Is it is it through um, yeah, campus channels or... Um your own facility, or or how do you go about that? Yeah, we're teaching the courses at the University of Western Ontario. So we do run it out of the university, which is a nice setting because there are some body composition tools in particular that are available to us working at the university that aren't so prevalent in a commercial setting. So, And also just kind of the, the setup for the classes works really well. I see, yep. So, uh, okay. So what about like, um, I don't know, uh, specific, uh, projects. Do you have anything going on? We usually try to talk to guests and say, you know, what, what's going on specifically? I mean, this, uh, your whole sort of mission, it seems like would lend itself to a book, for example, or a series of articles or some kind of, you know, online activity. Can you just, uh, just fill in listeners on any of that kind of stuff? No, for sure. Actually, my next big project, I'm, actually taking part in some development of some nutrition education slash coaching software um, where, again, it's designed to help bridge some of the gap. And what we see typically is people, when they get one-on-one support or coaching, do quite well um, with their body composition goals. 
the problem being it's somewhat cost prohibitive for everyone to hire their own personal nutrition coach. That being said, when people just are interacting with a computerized program, and you see this a lot like Fit Day and My Food Diary and all those commercially available programs, initially the motivation is quite high. They do quite well, but it tends to be tedious and cumbersome to log everything on a daily basis. And so we, there's a phenomenal rate of dropout in those computerized programs. And also you miss that human element of having someone actually check in on you and realizing that not everyone fits a mold that you can fully predict of this is the logical progression. There's going to be unique kind of problems that confront everyone in their weight loss or body transformation efforts. So basically it's working to create a program that is, again, it's predicated on teaching. It's not just here's a meal plan. I expect you to follow it. But, you know, giving some initial meal guidance and then taking people through it one step at a time to kind of, you know, teach and then say, well, here's the theory, but this is actually how you apply the theory in your day-to-day life. So breaking it down, so meal preparation strategies, exercise strategies, everything they need to do on a day-to-day basis to make sure they're actually complying and then kind of working towards some greater goals. Right. So how prevalent is is resistance training in in your approach, you're talking about eating and you know food prep and and all that kind of stuff. And of course, exercise. So maybe just share some of your thoughts on the role of resistance training as opposed to traditional you know aerobic activities or cardio or what have you. Well, I'm definitely no big fan of traditional aerobic activities, and not to say that there's anything wrong with them. I just think that most people who come to see me have weight loss, body transformation as a primary goal. And when that is the goal, you definitely have to put diet on a pedestal because first and foremost, you've got to clean up the diet. But then when we look at training, we know, and this is what a lot of the data is suggesting, that low-intensity or even moderate-intensity aerobic activity is really poor for body composition changes. And then kind of when you dig further into that data, you see that it's okay, actually, for young males, and that's unfortunately where most of the initial science was done when you look back and see kind of why people are suggesting to do, you know, large amounts of steady-state aerobic activity, it was because it was done on, you know, phys ed and kinesiology students because that was the logical population to grab at the time. Right. But then as we go on over time and we see, well, you know, let's apply these strategies to females, it really doesn't work all that well at all. And then you break the science down a little bit more, and then if you fix intake for a female, you can actually get them to lose weight using traditional forms of cardiovascular activity. When you allow them to eat whatever they want on so ad libitum diet, you don't see any kind of weight loss with traditional aerobic training. And that kind of corroborates what a lot of people in the practical domain see, where people will have personal trainers or people will come to the gym five, six days a week and faithfully do their treadmill or elliptical or whatever they choose. But after a little initial weight loss, everything just kind of plateaus. And so, it's helping people understand that traditional aerobic activity is really not your primary tool if you have a limited amount of exercise time in a week. Again, we're not talking about the bodybuilder types who might have 10, 12, 15 hours of activity per week. Yeah, for those guys, you're doing, you know, five to seven hours of high-intensity weight training. If they tack on another three hours of low-intensity cardio, will it help them change body composition? For sure. But when you only have three hours you need to be doing things that are a lot more effective than just plotting away on an elliptical. Right. Such as, I mean, like, are you are you, are you saying you're a proponent of sort of a, 
uh, I, I don't want to use necessarily the term circuit training, but, you know, resistance combined with uh, an aerobic component somehow, or, I mean, how do you go about that? Yeah, personally, like, again, when we're talking three or fewer hours, and that's unfortunately the reality for most people who aren't hardcore into training. They're going to train about three times a week. And so you really have to be looking at doing resistance training with limited rest intervals is really the number one way, or high-intensity interval training if you're going to go strictly the cardio route, and both of them seem relatively effective for changing body composition through exercise. And so it's really about kind of overwhelming the system's ability to tolerate the exercise stress. Um, And what we see is when you do steady-state activity, people don't stop because their heart and lungs give out. People stop out of boredom predominantly. Like, you can go for an hour jog, and you don't stop because you're too tired to continue. You stop because you just don't want to do it anymore. (laughs) around and ask someone to run 400-meter sprints all out. After about three or four of them, they're lying on the track, you know, gasping, and, you know, you couldn't pay them $100 to run another one. And so it's that kind of intense work where you're overwhelming your ability to tolerate it, which forces the adaptation. And the adaptation is often one, increase muscle mass or lose fat mass. That's the only way to make the activity demonstrably easier over time. And both of those will be, you know, positive for body composition change. Right. You, you talk about fat mass and, and, and uh, lean mass or more specifically even muscle mass. Um, that was one of the, the lectures, of course, that, that Dr. Lemon gave at, at that last seminar when I was up there was he's just giving a simple talk, and this fits in with what you were saying, Graham, a lot, which is body composition, not just body weight. You know, And something as simple as a, a concept as body comp, which we, you're right, we really take it for granted. That we understand that what the number, what goes into that number on the scale is, you know, not one uniform thing, uh, you know, but it's different things adding up to that body weight. And it's amazing how average people respond to a talk like Pete when Pete, Pete gave that talk. And it's like, oh, you know, like body composition, like my weight can stay the same and I can actually change the way I look. Well, yes, <laughs> you know, so it is. It's tremendously frustrating when you deal with people and you see that everyone is so hardwired into obsessing about body weight and not to overgeneralize, but it definitely seems to be something that's more prevalent among females than males. And, you know, it takes a long time when you're working with a female to often break this association that weight is the be-all and end-all. And it doesn't matter sometimes if you show them that their body composition numbers are improving or even that the mirror, you know, is showing them good things. They still want to know why, you know, their weight's going up or why is their weight plateauing and why isn't it coming down. And it just goes to show that we've taught people a lot of the wrong messages over time. And whether that's science's fault, whether it's the popular media, it doesn't really matter why it's the case. It's just the reality is we are often focused on the wrong things, like body weight and and then kind of more into my own kind of, I guess, area of interest, you know, this whole calorie issue of calories in and calories out and what I perceive as kind of a limited value to that kind of discussion. My own perception of of a lot of what you just said is I don't think science is wrong because a a good scientist is going to talk in probabilities anyway. I think the problem comes when educators, they either selectively cite something that they agree with or they rely on professional opinion too much or they start quoting each other in textbooks, which is really something that I see with the – you know, protein demonization kinds of things, you know. And uh, so I think it's 
if there's a fault, it may be more along the lines of what I would call the educators as opposed to the the pure scientists, because a lot of the scientists, of course, by the time they have their doctorate or you know they're involved in research at the master's level, they're they're pretty spe- specific. You know, they're pretty specialized in what they do, and and they're coming up with good answers. It's just that we need to stop. Well, we don't need to stop making these basic research kinds of endeavors, but we need to really start to get into this whole translational research idea where you're you're doing more you know, application with it all. And that's sort of been a theme on God for the last several months on this show is, you know, we'll have guys on from like we had um, Nick Bird from Stu Phillips lab talking about optimal sets and reps for protein synthesis. And then, and then have a discussion about how well that actually applies in an actual gym setting at lunchtime or something, you know, and, and then we had John Mike on talking about electromyography and, you know, what number of sets and reps might be optimal to really try to maximize that. And then, of course, there's always the art of coaching or like what you do, you know, whether it's nutrition coaching or, or athletic coaching where now you've got to try to take individual differences because, let's face it, performance genomics and nutritional genomics aren't quite at the point that it's just widespread and we can do a little cheek swab and tailor stuff for people. So that's where sort of you have to be well-rounded and, and have that coaching experience, I think. so. No, I would definitely agree. And I think just to kind of highlight something you'd mentioned is it's not the science that's often poor. It's kind of we're overgeneralizing often from the science. And so we make these grandiose sweeping claims because we tend to like to operate in black and white. It's either, you know, you should train this way or you shouldn't, when the reality is, you know, you really have to look at which group was studied in order to produce that result. And then all you can really say is, you know, future people, if they come from the exact same population, are likely to respond the same way. And I think scientists instinctively know that, but it's that translation by, you know, the educators where they're missing that and they just want to latch on to one particular finding and then apply it to, you know, every subject or every client that comes through their doors. And that's really where I see the, the shortcoming for a lot of people's approach. They want to have this one-size-fits-all or universal truth, and the reality is there's such a widespread in the nutrigenomic side in the individual differences that we'll never have anything that applies universally to an entire population. Right. You know, and you're talking about educators, and I was too, of course. Journalists do that too. We've trained people to listen to the evening news, and they say new research proves. Well, first of all, research doesn't prove anything. Secondly, Secondly, it, it's just that's just the conclusion made for the consumer by somebody else. Nobody is saying anything about the methodology, right? So, listeners, think about this. Next time you hear the evening news and someone says, "Well, new research proves," start asking methods questions like, "In who?" or "How did you measure that?" "How long did it take?" But that's not what the news provides. They like, like you said, black and white. Here's what it means. Move on. And that leaves people without a critical thinking ability. You know, our critical faculties are in decline, and we end up just being sort of gullible and credulous. And um, it, like you said, it's, it's, it's just that we have to almost have to unlearn that in people. It's just tough. We often do, and it's, it is a source of frustration, but that's also kind of where there is this need for programs that go beyond just simple do this, don't do that, and kind of start incorporating some of the actual teaching of, you know, do this, but this is why, and then explaining to people why, because ultimately the failure for so many, especially on the nutrition side, failure for so many nutrition programs is they don't teach people about contingencies, and so 
as long as you follow faithfully this meal plan, you'll have success. And we know that. The research has shown that very well. When a researcher looks over someone's shoulder and follows them for three to four months and makes sure they eat exactly what's prescribed, people tend to do very well with body composition change. However, once they get back out into that real world and someone's no longer checking up on them, this is where we see, you know, all the kind of recidivism and people no longer adhering to diets. And if you look at kind of just the statistics here of how many people maintain weight loss for two years, it's less than 10%. And so if we know that with our current strategies and the way we currently teach people about how to manage their weight, 90% plus people will fail in two years, that tells me what we're doing currently is pretty useless because it's not producing any kind of lasting change. So we really need to look at why. Why can't we get people to change? And then once we have an understanding of maybe why they're failing, what strategies are we going to need to help them kind of, you know, stick with what is being taught and kind of continuing to apply these exercise and nutrition lessons on a daily basis going forward? Right. It's it's funny we're talking about this. Just this week I was teaching to an intro health class about – different theories of behavior change. I mean, there are whole models of this stuff, people, you know, so I mean, like I like the readiness to change model, you know, and so if, if people are out there, if you're a personal trainer, let me just give you a quick synopsis. So here's just one example. You can sort of hold up a ruler and you can say, how motivated are you on this scale from one to 12, 12 being stoked, one being just don't care. And then the client or the patient would say, well, you know, I'm a three. Well, if there are three, don't start setting specific goals for them. They don't care. So instead, you're going to reinforce why it's important, you know, highlight the benefits of what, what, whether it's resistance exercise or whatever it might be, you know, how enjoyable it might be. But you're not going to start setting goals. If they're at the very top and they're totally stoked, then yeah, maybe set some, you know, quantitative, very specific goals. But so it's just one model, you know, because some people are, when they're unenthused, that's called pre-contemplation. They're not even contemplating doing this yet, you know? And then eventually you move through models like where they start to, or stages where they start to contemplate. Then maybe they actually start to get active, but not quite enough. And then, you know, all the way through what Phil would call a lifer, which is sort of the termination phase in a way where they don't even need the professionals help that much anymore. They're, they're doing the physical activity, the resistance training or the dietary regime or whatever. And they're doing it just like it's per personal hygiene, you know, or, or something like that. So anyway, there's, there's lots of uh, theories on behavior change. And that's one of the reasons I like what Graham does because it's sort of an academic lay hybrid situation, which is exactly what we need to interface with society. And so, uh, so people can go read more if they want. Um, Graham's site uh, is www.gramthomasonline.com. So G-R-A-E-M-E thomasonline.com. So it's a good place to go for some reads. And actually, that'll be a segue for our topic of the day because one of the things that Graham likes to write about is calorie counting and why it doesn't work. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So Phil, do you have access to that bumper music? Okay, uh, what I'd like to do is today talk about sort of calorie counting and a couple of different things that, that Graham is uh, sort of respectfully critical on as far as what, you know, science 
says, what it really says versus what we think it says, or a lot of people thinks it says. So, and then I'm going to, throughout, I'll try to ask Fortress and Phil about how, how they uh, approach this, you know, from, just from the standpoint of uh, being a power athlete or, or what have you. But first, Graham, can you just give a little synopsis of the UWO lecture that you gave? Because I, I thought that was fascinating. You're really pointing out a lot of outside of the box uh, reasons for why everybody is getting fat, essentially, because we are. And, uh, you know, and what did you talk about then? Uh, well, basically, the talk was entitled Why Calorie Counting is Making You Fat. And I don't want it to come across that people get the idea that calories don't matter because they do. It's just the problem is we're trying to distill a very complex biochemical issue, which is the issue of weight gain, down into simple mathematics, and it's not at all a math problem. Anyone can understand that a pound of fat contains 3,500 calories. But just because you know that doesn't mean you understand anything about how to change the level of fat in someone's body. And we've seen that it's not so simple as just telling someone to eat a little less and exercise a little bit more. And the reason why that doesn't work is we have all these homeostatic mechanisms in a free-living human that's going to adjust appetite decrease activity level, change kind of other hormones that kind of go on in the background to kind of, you know, bring you right back to that initial weight and depending what you've done as part of your weight loss efforts, maybe even, you know, bring you back to a higher level of body fat, which is totally the wrong issue. And again, if we just look at the simple math of it, if someone were to gain five pounds in a year, it works out to, you know, almost 18,000 calories. And I was like, well, that's a lot of calories to eat in excess. But when you look at the math, it means you've only, you know, overconsumed by 50 calories a day, which really isn't that much. And none of us on this call count our calories down to, you know, being accurate within 50 calories. And yet, Mm -hmm. you know, none of us are gaining five pounds every year. You know, I've actually heard, I've heard that called the toast catastrophe. (laughs) Because when you do the math, it's just catastrophically wrong from a realistic point of view, you know? No, it's so wrong. And so if we're, everyone recognizes the limitations of, you know, this calorie equation not really panning out when you apply it in real-world situations, I'm telling people, you know, stop using it. You know, it's important to have an understanding. And I think what people need to appreciate from calories is have caloric awareness. And what I mean by caloric awareness is understanding, well, which types of foods are pretty, you know, low in calories, so vegetables and fruits and all that, you get a large volume of food for very few calories in which foods tend to be calorically dense. And then within the calorically dense foods, which ones, you know, are health-promoting, so something like eggs or nuts or anything like that, yes, they're higher in calories, but with a lot of beneficial nutrition as opposed to something like a donut or, you know, cookies which are high in calories and have no redeeming qualities. I feel terrible because I'm I'm eating a cookie while you're saying this, <laughs> but I'm also doing the the fill technique, which is you know I'm having a, a big healthy lunch and I'm just following it up with a cookie because I'm just trying to gain some weight. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> it always depends on the goal. If you're looking for weight gain, you obviously have a lot more leeway in what you can put into your body. But when you look at kind of you know the lay person, I'd say over ninety percent of them are actively trying to lose weight at any given point in time. In which case they need to understand the sources of the calories in their diet, but you need to go way beyond just counting calories because there's a lot of of other important factors. Right. Can you name just a couple? Sure. 
Um, there's some actually really compelling evidence to look at kind of the amount of time people sleep and how much weight um, they tend to gain. And we know that people who sleep fewer than six hours over the years tend to gain more weight. And that doesn't tell you exactly why people gain more weight. We just know that that's the relationship. Short sleepers and excessively long sleepers, so people who sleep more than, you know, nine hours, also gain a lot of weight. So there is this kind of sweet spot for humans that's between seven and nine hours that you should be getting that sleep every night. But then again, we can further complicate the issue and we understand that, you know, there's optimal times to be asleep and that might be, you know, falling asleep sometime between 10 and 11 o'clock at night and getting up, you know, 6.30 to 7.30 in the morning and that, if you were to give someone an optimal strategy, it would be that. And we see that people who fall asleep at, you know, 2 a.m. and then get up at 9 don't do as well as the people who fall asleep at 11 p.m. and get up at 6, even though they both slept the same length of time. And so there's just all these layers of complexity. So sleep would be one thing. We're also starting to identify a number of endocrine disruptors in the diet and the environment. And so these are things that mimic estrogens often in the human body and they're not necessarily, they don't have a caloric value per se, so we don't necessarily even eat them. They can be in cosmetics, they can be in things like the scent they put in new cars and all kinds of things like that. And so all these things in susceptible individuals, it makes their body perceive a higher level of estrogen and for certain people, higher levels of estrogens correlate with you know, increased fat storage. And so again, things that don't have any caloric value because sleeping less you know, it doesn't change how many calories you're putting in. And using makeup, for example, isn't changing the calories, but some of the chemicals can get into the body or you're changing the hormonal profile by the amount you sleep. And then we see kind of changes in the outcome, which is, you know, how much body fat you're storing. So it becomes more complicated than just a simple math issue. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, the, I've heard of quite a bit about phytoestrogens or people will talk about like BPA, bisphenol A and plastics and I mean so many sort of exposures that we get. So of course the tough thing is we live in a in a speedy crazy world and actually it's getting faster here in the west in in US and Canada and and I'm sure in western Europe and other places too and I'm not sure where this is headed but I I spoke to a physician recently and this is more anecdotal but he said if you just draw the line of the increase in overweight and obesity in this country, that 90% of us are going to be overweight or obese by 2015. And if that's, if, if that holds true, and I don't see that as being that unusual because I mean, last I heard was we were at 72%. I saw some NIH data uh, last uh, February in Chicago. So, you know, wow. You know, there are obviously, whether it's environmental exposures like estrogens or it's schedule, you know, uh, we rely more and more on stuff like energy drinks and coffee because we're not sleeping and it next sort of creates a vicious circle with more sleep disturbances, you know. So, yeah. Even beyond some of the chemicals we're putting in, we just look at, you know, the increase in nighttime television programming, internet use. And these are all things that we don't realize, but they're keeping us up later and later. Had we gone back 70 years ago, there was nothing to do after the sun went down. And so you would have gone to sleep and there was no other reason to stay up. But now we've, because society is changing so rapidly, you know, we're also to blame for shifting kind of some of these patterns. And when we look at it from animal models, we know that, you know, forcing mice, for example, to eat in the daylight, because normally mice are nocturnal, so they prefer to eat at night, but if you keep them 
you know, only give them access to food during the daytime hours, they'll eat the same number of calories as they might during the night, but they gain more weight. And so we've disrupted their natural diurnal variations and the natural pattern to their hormones, and it's created this kind of scenario where they'll store excess body fat, and that's just part of the issue that we're facing now as well. I think that was actually shown in humans too in the nurses' health study where the night night shift nurses were not eating any more calories, and yet, yeah, they're getting fatter than their daytime counterparts that are eating the same. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's, and so it's just, and there's, I don't want ever to kind of sound like, you know, we're pinning the blame on just one thing. It's really the fact that we've got a whole bunch of these different areas that are now impacting it, which is why kind of this increase in obesity seems to be population-wide and not just limited to a few susceptible individuals who are sensitive, you know, to the shift work or what have you. But there's a number of things that are, you know, getting this obesity ball rolling, so to speak, which is not a good thing. Yeah. Clearly, you would think, and there's long been this debate about nature versus nurture, you know, and if you look over the last 30 years, I mean, when I was a kid in the 70s, very few people were hugely obese, you know. So it's not like 30 years later, our genome has completely changed. Clearly, the environment is changing, and we, we're, we're relying on this sort of ancient, uh, you know, DNA that was naturally naturally selected over forty or a hundred thousand years or more, and it doesn't know what to do with what's in this new environment. You know, the interesting thing is when you watch, like, you always hear people who are you know younger than us by fifteen twenty years saying, if they watch like a seventies movie or an eighties movie, they'll say, "Geez, everybody's so skinny. All the guys are so skinny. Everybody's so thin. Everybody's so skinny." And I mean, it really is noticeable. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say one of my favorite technology authors, John C. Dvorak, he writes for like PC Magazine and stuff. He says, and this is just his opinion, but I think it's accurate. He says that we have no immunity against things like social networking with Facebook and texting and you know, like Graham was saying, it used to be people got bored essentially to sleep at night after it was dark. You can't see, you know, nothing else is going on. You go to sleep. And it's the same thing with social things, right? If you had to write a letter to a friend back home or call them or something, you probably wouldn't do that in the middle of the night. But you could text or email people any time of the day. And again, look at college students. You almost, you have to force them to close their laptops and put away their, their you know texting devices and cell phones in class. And we have no immunity to this lure of constant, easy socialization. You know, socializing at all hours and or entertainment. So, yeah, I, th I thought that was a very interesting way to look at it. That holy cow, we have no immunity to this kind of thing that technology is now providing, because humans are social creatures. And yet, you know, when it's always available, we'll stay up all night long doing it. We have no immunity. Well, yeah, and well, you got to look at too. I mean, in no time than you know the past 150 years, let alone our own generation, has the work atmosphere changed. I mean, people don't work anymore, but yet they eat like their grandfathers used to. You know, and that just doesn't work. You know, I mean, I had uncles and, and grandfathers and whatnot that, that worked farms. And, I mean, you did farms by hand. And now, you know, it's large, large ranchers that drive a big combine. You know, yeah. but yet everybody wants to sit down to the big potatoes and steak dinner and this and that. And, of course, I mean, something's got to give. So... Sure. I think that's an excellent point. I think, you know, if we look at today's society, we think people who are physically active an hour a day are some kind of the exception, and they're almost freaks if you tell people, you know, I go to the gym for an hour a day. 
Whereas, as you mentioned, you know, 50 years ago, everyone worked 8, 10, 12 hours of demanding physical activity every day and could get away with, you know, pretty much eating whatever they want and not gaining extra body fat. But we want to still eat that way because we're conditioned, we're pleasure seekers, and a lot of food nowadays is very pleasurable, and yet we're a very sedentary society, and there's a total disconnect here. Here, here, play a little bit of devil's advocate, maybe. Would you also say that maybe it's these same environmental factors and changes that also have led to better athletes and bigger people uh, muscular-wise than ever before? I mean, definitely the... across the board, we have huge, very fast athletes, and, I mean, a lot of that, I would think, would have to be due to the fact that you know, they don't have to go work 10 hours in the field anymore or in the in the slaughterhouse. You know, they can train hard and eat big with this very uh, convenient food and, and recover. No, I definitely think that's the case. Unfortunately, we're talking about, you know, the 1% of the population who's using the excess energy in a constructive manner, and they're applying themselves still and unfortunate, and probably have the genetics that also allow them to do so, and that's another part of the equation. The people who become elite athletes have genetic predisposition to to be good at athletics, whereas a lot of people don't. They have the genetics to store a lot of body fat, and if you put a lot of energy into someone who's not doing anything productive with it, catastrophic results kind of emerging, which is what we're seeing. But I definitely agree with you. A lot of the easier access to food and high-quality foods in today's society as opposed to 100 years ago definitely has allowed bigger, stronger, faster athletes to emerge. That's a cool glasses half full approach, Phil. I mean, I mean, specific to a lot of the listeners who are strength athletes, it's true. This, it's the curse of, you know, most of the population could actually become the boon of the powerlifter or the bodybuilder type, because yeah, you're not working construction twelve hours a day necessarily, and you can actually be a little lazy and recover outside of the gym and and, and eat you know, plenty, plentiful, I mean, things like we take for granted in this country. I mean, the amount of meat, I know you're a big meat eater, Phil, and I think we probably all are on some level. You know, that kind of stuff is always available. It's a little bit more expensive, but not always, honestly, because of food subsidies and everything. It's amazing to me that sometimes a hamburger is cheaper than vegetables, but uh, because, you know, food chain wise, that seems impossible. But anyway, yeah, that's kind of a cool way to look at things. My attention first, I was working with some some older powerlifters that were champions in the 70s and 60s, and this was when I was doing full-time forum work and computer work, and they're like, man, you got the perfect job. I wish I had your job when I was competing. You know, you can go train hard for three hours and then sit on your butt and recover. So, yeah. Well, hey, I wanted to ask, before I move on, I just, I'm going to ask Fortress and you, Phil, how, how much do you sleep, and when do you go to bed? I'm just curious. What about you, Fortress? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I try and uh, I, I try and get minimum eight or nine hours sleep if I can. Um, I mean, like what time? What time are you hitting the sack? Well, I mean, there's a few days a week. You know, I'm going to bed quite late. Oh, because you work. Yeah, you work a late shift, right? Yeah, uh, a few days a week. But I mean, you know, it's it's. I definitely agree with what was said earlier. The whole concept of. Um, I don't believe eight hours sleep is, is, is the same. Like was said, if you go to bed at like nine, you have it, you know, five, um, you know, versus going to bed at like three and, you know, and getting up at whatever that is for eight hours, 11, 12 or whatever. Um, I definitely think there's, there's quality of sleep that is different 
the time frame is different. So but I always try and get at least eight or nine hours sleep. I, I don't understand people who can. Uh, I mean, I know lots of people who could get away with you know four, five, three hours sleep a night. Now, of course, these are not athletes, and so of course, there's going to be a, a necessitate more sleep. But uh, yeah, I, I think probably in general, I think society sleeps too little. Um, I think everybody's pretty much chronically fatigued. <laughs> At least where I, right. you know, where I look. Um, and if I can, like I, last night I slept, uh, I, was in, I was in bed for 12 hours. So, yeah. so if I can get away with that, I'll do it. I was just reading some statistics that college students now sleep uh, 60 to 90 minutes less than our generation did on average. And I'm thinking, damn, you know, that's, that's, that's enough to make a difference. I know the whole coffee shop, uh, donut shop thing is kind of a largely a Canadian thing too, but um, I don't know if it's like this down there, but I mean, everybody around here, walk, you know, everybody in Canada walks around with a cup of coffee, you know, and eight times out of ten is from Tim Hortons. Um, yeah. Everybody drinks coffee constantly. And um, you know, Lonnie, my feelings on coffee, it should be used like a tool and not like a, you know, a beverage just to drink all the time. I, I pretty much try and limit my you know, coffee intake to, just before I train because um, I, I don't really understand the whole concept of drinking coffee after you train or the day after when you're trying to recuperate so then you're jacking up your freaking central nervous system when your body's trying to recuperate. That doesn't make much sense to me. But Good point. But, you know, certainly certainly I could go back to the original question about sleep. Yeah, I, I think everybody, athletes and non-athletes, sleeps, sleep too little today and expect too much of themselves. Both and both mentally and physically. And the whole concept, like you're saying, about texting and all these things, yeah, it's just that I think it's causing stress levels, just, you know, out the yin and cortisol levels are flying all over the place. And they say people are underslept, overstimulated, um, in all manner of speaking. So I don't know. Yeah. I actually remember during that talk I keep referring to, Graham asked people, you know, who went to bed after. I don't know what you say, Graham, 1 a.m. or something. And like 90% of the people's hands went up. And I'm like, oh my God, you know? So we have, we have no concept of a light dark cycle. And like Graham was saying, you know, animal studies, they manipulate light dark cycles all the time with dramatic results. And, you know, here everybody's raising their hand. Yeah. It, uh, go ahead. Just gonna, it's just daunting when you see the numbers and it's, you know, we start and then people, you know, get so frustrated because, they, you know, like exercise well, I eat well, and they don't understand that the recovery is where the good things happen. You can train all you want and you can put seemingly good nutrition in, but if you aren't sleeping and taking that time to recover, like Phil said, like you can't just beat the central nervous system into the ground and expect any kind of positive training result. It's not going to happen. So people have no understanding about recovery, and that's definitely a massive shortcoming of most programs. They don't stress that anywhere near enough. No, I mean me myself. Um, yeah. I I am and always have been an early early to bed early to rise person. I mean, if ten o'clock rolls around and I'm not in bed, it's that's pretty rare. So um, you know, I'll go to bed nine and get up. I try to wake up when I just normally do, which is around six or so. But uh, sometimes over, I'm not the best sleeper at times, but much better than I was in grad school when I was getting like two hours a night. So, but. Yeah, I've just right. been that way since birth, though. I mean, I was the person that just, my mom always said, you know, I could just find you curled up in a corner somewhere, and I was just done. So I took... Yep. Me too, brother. Yep. Me too. 
I've always I've always needed about nine hours of sleep, and my wife always says, "My God, Lonnie, you can take a nap anywhere." You know, <laughs> so you know, yeah, people are different. I'm sure that's a genetic difference too. You know, some people they just don't need nine hours. I don't think, and you know, Graham was talking about that too. You know, there's a sweet spot, and I'm sure it's a little different for everybody. But yeah, I think it's a little different, but it's tough to justify the the four hours a night sleepers. There's not right on driving yeah. around there, so. Right. Yep. Well, the the last question I have for Graham uh, in this sort of topic of the week is, what are your other pet peeves? I mean, calorie counting, I think, is a debacle. <laughs> I agree with you 100%. What are some other pet peeves? Because I know you've written about several other things. Yeah. I, I was starting to allude to it earlier, but exercise intensity, in my opinion, is if you're going to only concentrate on one variable for people, you got to start preaching the intensity of the effort is the one that's going to make, from a body composition perspective for sure, is the, the be-all and end-all. And again, I don't know why we tend to approach females and males so wildly differently from this perspective, but it seems okay for a guy to go in and lift heavy and brag about how much he's lifting. And then females, they're you flip around and they're being told to, you know, lift three to five pound weights and do God knows how many reps for things that just don't produce any results. And it just it boggles my mind how anyone with a conscience could talk in those terms because it doesn't work. Yeah, don't use the word tone, people. You know, you're either adding fat-free mass or removing fat mass. I don't. I hate tone. I don't have a single piece of equipment in the lab that measures tone. <laughs> so, I mean, in fact, to a researcher, muscle tone has. It's more of a, you know, electrical phenomenon than it is some visual thing. So it's, you know, don't say tone, please. <laughs> well, or you get the ones, the people that come up and they are carrying no muscle mass and they preach that, well, I don't want to get big, I just want to get toned. Yeah. Well, you, you, you've got to have some muscle mass to have tone. Yeah. I would say another thing that really kind of bothers me is the whole, you know, low carb versus low fat debate. And if you look at the numbers, it's pretty clear that there's different genotypes in the population, and some people thrive on low carb, and other people thrive on high carb. And so you shouldn't argue which one is better as kind of a, an overgeneralization. You have to say which one is appropriate for a specific individual or a specific subset of the population. And if you're talking about elite male triathletes, if you're not giving them 65% plus of their diet in the form of carbohydrates, they're going to struggle. But if you flip it around and look at overweight individuals with metabolic syndrome, you know, it's tough to make any kind of rational argument for why they should consume more than, you know, 15, 20% of their energy in the form yeah. of carbohydrates. And yet we want to say that, you know, humans should all eat in this fashion. It just doesn't make any sense. You know what, Graham? I think a lot of that stems from sort of sustainability and government guidelines and government messages that come out. Uh, you'll sort of see, you know, the health professionals, nurses or dietitians or whatever, they pass along these messages, you know, low-fat, high-carb kinds of messages that have been so prevalent over the last 20 years. I'm not saying all nurses and dietitians do this because they don't or, or trainers. Um, but when you think about sustainability, you know, it's, it behooves us as a world where 90, 95% of us are almost artificially supported by grain based agriculture in a way, you know, that I'm not sure everybody can eat lean meats and fruits and vegetables, uh, because if that happens, like I said, it's just not sustainable. And I think that's part of the reason that this message is so hard to 
reverse, you know, because I, I think governments, at least some people in, in different government organizations, they know that, oh my God, if everybody starts eating lean meats and fruits and vegetables and eggs and stuff like that, well, eggs might be more renewable, but you know what I mean. I, I'm not sure it's super sustainable. So you keep getting these messages that I think are, are relatively bogus, like whole grains. Oh, there's eight grams of whole grains in my chips. Well, meaning what? You know, I mean, there's no fiber in them. Meaning what exactly? So, I don't know. Well, I think all the shift the other way, especially like five years ago, there was that whole shift in the athletic culture where people got just carbohydrate scared. And, I mean, I've had to deal with people and just make them eat the stuff. It's like, man, you're training hard. You're going to use it. And, you know, they'd get leaner by adding carbohydrates back in, and they were totally afraid of them. You know, carbs equal fat, carbs equal fat. And it's like, man... Not if you're using it up. Yeah, Graham, how do you discern that without, you know, genetic profiling? How would you go about whether or not somebody might want to go low carb or low fat? You mentioned like the kind of activity they do. You know, being like an ultra marathoner versus somebody who's just, you know, working out on their lunch break or something. But is there? Do you have any other tips for how people might be able to, you know, focus on one or the other? For sure, I like to get people to. You know, again, when you're working with somebody, you got to talk to them and figure out where they're coming from. You know, just want to have them sit down and, and start prescribing things. So I always look at kind of, you know, familial traits, you know, do things like heart disease, diabetes, obesity run in the family. Because if they run in the family, we know the genetic traits for obesity, for example, are quite highly expressed in the offspring. Right so if your family's susceptible to obesity, then you're going to have to be someone who's very careful about your nutrient timing and when you're putting certain things in. If you have come from a family of people who are rail thin, you know, odds are you're going to have pretty good carbohydrate sensitivity and the nutrient timing issue won't be as significant for someone like that. And then if you look at kind of, you know, even what part of the world people hail from, and again, this is a lot of observation, but, you know, for people who've had 10,000 years of evolution to deal with higher carbohydrate diets, so, you know, the Asian example works really well. Anyone who lives in mainland China would have had a diet high in rice, for example, for thousands of years. So their genes have evolved to to deal well with that. Whereas if we flip someone around, this is kind of an extreme example, but someone from the Inuit, so, you know, northern Canada, you can't give them any source of grain because they've just never have had it for the past 10,000 years, and they only eat fat and protein. So sometimes looking at where someone's ancestors hail from gives you a pretty good idea of what they're most likely, you know, suited to run off of, in other words. Yeah. That, I think that's a fascinating way to look at that. And again, that's why I like to talk to you because, I mean, I don't think most people think about his, history, you know, and genetic, you know, selection over the last 10,000 years of or more of society too. Yeah. I mean, the Pima Indians are often using it as, as an example of just, you know, sort of a, a metabolic mess of diabetes and metabolic syndrome and, and hypertension and all the things that go with that. And if, if you look at how they were before they were sort of westernized or quote unquote modernized, they were okay. You know, they just didn't have the selection. They just didn't have the gene profile to start wolfing down grains. And, and it's like that for so many foods. If we look at dairy, there's very few Asians who can tolerate dairy in any kind of appreciable amount. They just never would have been exposed to it. Whereas if you look at people who hail from Northern Europe, who always would have had 
you know, quite large amounts of dairy in their diet for many years. They don't have anywhere near the incidence of lactose intolerance and whatnot. So, you know, we really start need to be a little bit smarter with who we're telling. So, you know, should we tell people to avoid dairy? Well, it really just depends on how well you tolerate it. You know, if you don't have any problems, then it's a relatively cheap source of nutrients, and it's high-quality nutrients for people who tolerate it well. If it's making you bloated and feel terrible, then just don't eat it. It doesn't need to be more complicated than that. Right. Cool advice. Yeah. Family history, um, sort of cultural history, you know, profiling, those all give you suggestions on what kind of genes you have without actually getting some kind of, you know, full-blown genetic profiling done, expensive genetic profile. profile. Again, we're starting to, to tease out certain genes that might be predictive, but we're still years away from having any kind of real ironclad test. That being said, you know, if people are willing to pay a little attention to their own responses to food or training, they'll often get a lot of the answers. And the, the downside of all this is that it, a little bit more time-consuming to do it, obviously. People want quick results, and they just want an answer when they go see a coach. They just want to be told, tell me exactly what to do, when all good coaches know that they're going to need to take some time to work with you to figure out where you need to go. But if you're willing to invest that small amount of time to do some of these tests on yourself, then the long-term results tend to come a lot faster. Yeah. And I want to point out, too, the entire field of epigenetics, which basically just literally means upon the genes, it, it really so, sort of suggests that we we can turn genes on and off with different nutrients or physical activity patterns. I mean, that's that's part of what sort of nutrigenetics and performance genetics are, are, are about. And oftentimes you'll see inconclusive evidence when you just try to link a disease or a, a phenotype, you know, a body shape or something to a gene. Because sometimes it's multiple genes. Sometimes, you know, epigenetic factors turn genes on and off. So, you know, it's not the end-all, be-all either. It's just a more complex picture than that. And again, what do we have to deal with that? All you can do is look at histories and, you know, a good nutritionist will look at all these kinds of medical histories and, and family histories as part of an, an assessment anyway. And then, then it's coaching and behavior, like what Graham's been saying. So, you know, there's behavior seem to be one of the single biggest issues and all these other things just sort of set a baseline guide. Oh, for sure. And I think anyone who is involved in coaching, like many of us on this call are, they understand it's the motivation and you can know all or design the best plan in the world, but if someone doesn't follow it, and it's not going to produce any kind of positive results. So often it's, you know, starting someone on a somewhat suboptimal plan and as you're just transitioning them towards, you know, the ultimate end goal, and that's kind of where, you know, the skill of the practitioner comes into all this. It's having an appreciation and understanding of the science and what you're trying to do, but then understanding the steps that you need to take someone through to get there. Good advice. Okay, I, I think we're out of time here, so let me just remind listeners one more time. We're talking to Graham Thomas. He has a, a great website, uh, www.grahamthomasonline.com. Uh, you can Google that, G-R-A-E-M-E, Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S, online, all one word, grahamthomasonline.com. Is there any other source of information people can reach you, Graham, or is that preferred? That's probably the best way, yeah, just go through that website. You can... Okay. Contact me if need be. All right. Well, I guess that's a wrap. Yeah, Graham, thanks for joining us. That was my pleasure. Thanks, everybody.
Thanks a lot. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like Iron Radio, if you like what we do, uh, the education, interviewing uh, industry personalities, or many of the pro bodybuilders or coaches that we've had in the past, uh, please just click on the donate button at www.ironradio.org and make a donation. We've had some great donations from people that have kept us going. Thank you so much. Uh, so please visit uh, the website, click on the donation button, or if you like, uh, and it's a similar situation, buy some Iron Radio cool stuff. We've got t-shirts and mugs and things like that, and those things help support the site and keep us on the air. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.